Welcome to the Talking With Tech Podcast. My name is Chris Bouguet, and I'm here with... <gasps> Melissa Bouguet. And... Sarah Gregory. And of course... Rachel Madel. Live in the flesh, we are hovered around the phone recording this at a table in the Airbnb that Sarah and Rachel are staying in. We just wanted to say hello from ASHA 2021. Yay! We're really excited. It's been a great it's been a great conference. It has been, right? We've seen good stuff. Yes, we have. We've had good fun. I had a great day. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't at Asha. I know, and I want to be so bad. Come tomorrow. We're going to be talking about robots. Oh, I'm ready. Games. We got all sorts of stuff. But okay, besides Asha, I thought we could do something else here, fun for the podcast in general, right? So, um, and it's actually in relation to one of the most recent podcasts that came out. But I'll make that connection in a second. Okay. So, you know how I love games, right? You I, know, know. I love to play I my games. Love to play games, right? You know how we love to play games yes, at home, right? So, one of the games I thought we would play. As we each take a turn trying to think of a phrase or a song lyric, so a phrase from a movie or a song lyric, and we either do one of two things, either um, start it and the rest of us would then finish it, or the second part would be, uh, the second option would be to um, name where that is from, right? So, um so I'll start as a kind of an idea, and then we'll go round robin around, right? Okay, I'm ready. So you can either finish this phrase or give me the where this is from. You ready? Ready? Mm-hmm. Uh, why is the carpet all wet, Todd? I don't know, Margo. Excellent. So you knew, <laughs> and where is that from? That is from Christmas Vacation. Christmas Vacation. Now, play along in the car if you're listening to this, in the car or on the treadmill or wherever you're listening. Play along. We're going to keep guessing what these are. So who wants to go next? Who has one? A phrase. Now, Sarah, I'm looking at oh, you. She's okay. raising because, her hand. Because I know you have young kids. So <laughs> what are some of those things that you might say or hear your, your young kids say? Wait, what, is it my turn? I'm yeah, sure. You turn. raised your hand. I did. I raised my hand. Girl in okay. the back. Girl um, in the back. That's me. <laughs> Rachel. Okay. I don't know why this came into my head, but I'm going to go with it. You ready? Okay. Ready. We will, we will rock, rock you. Perfect. Perfect. That is perfect, right? Okay. Thank so you. that is from Queen, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Excellent. Nuke. <laughs> I am your... Father. Father. Yes. Now, <laughs> most people would think Star Wars, but that is not actually Star Wars. Oh, right. sorry. I want me nerd out here for a second. And that is actually The Empire Strikes Back, which is, of course, in the Star Wars universe. Did, did you just fall more in love with me, though? Yeah, I did. I mean, uh, what are the, come on. What are the yeah. chances? I was surprised, though, because I would have thought for sure you would have gone with a Marvel reference, not a Star Wars reference. Mm, I have a fun story to share. I just um, recently was doing uh, the newest uh, virtual reality. What is it called? The Oculus? Oh, yeah. The newest technology. Yeah. yeah. And I, it was a Star Wars game. And it was life-changing. The Darth Vader one? Yes. Yeah, we have it. It makes me sick to my stomach. Okay, it does. (laughs) It makes me sick to my stomach. But how scary is it, right? So scary. (laughs) So So scary. I was scared. I was terrified. And this is me. And literally, when we climb up the oh ladder, yes. yes, I was like, "This is insane." Did you do the thing where you went over the lava? Yes. yes. Oh my gosh! Yes. And you're ex- yes. Oh, yeah, nope. it's ridiculous, but it's so lava. realistic, it's right? So cool. But it's, that's why I'm coming to Hawaii because yes. then we can go yes. over lava. Days. Exactly, I'm into it. Well, funny story about that, Rachel, is that you posted you doing that on your Instagram, I did. and now all of my Facebook ads are for Oculus. <laughs> <laughs> so. Okay. 
Creature report. Creature report. Creature, Creature report. report. That is totally <laughs> Octonauts, right? So, okay. Yes. Excellent. Right. In the same vein of that is I'm the. Oh, I'm the map. I'm the map. I'm oh. the map. I'm the map. Star. I'm My the kids map. Dora. Dora. Yes, this is Dora the Explorer. Dora the Explorer. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, one more. One more. Let's do one more. Who's got anyone? Anyone got one that you can think of? Mm. A song. Oh. A, t- a movie reference? Can you think of a movie reference? Okay, I have a movie reference, but it's not going to be a fill-in. Okay. Okay, so this is my kid's new favorite movie, and it's a throwback from a movie that I used to watch when I was younger. So see if you can get it. Ooh, it was a run by fruiting. This is downfire. Yes. That was great. All right. So that was Mrs. Doubtfire. Amazing. Amazing. So here's why I wanted us to go through this exercise. And I bet if we asked everyone listening, they could come up with a whole bunch of other like bits that they do with their friends or their family or things like that. Right. And so why I brought it up is because this is what I was thinking about. Actually, this is what I was thinking about when you recorded with Alexandria Zakos. Right. And she was talking about that gestalt language learning. And the way it was framed in that episode was you were either a, a gestalt language learner or you're an analytic language learner. And I think it might be more of a sliding scale that, that um, and I don't know for sure, right? This is me speculating. But I wonder if like, we all have certain things, phrases that kind of stick in your mind, that earworm when of a song that you just can't, that new Taylor Swift song just came out where she's razzing Jake Gyllenhaal. And it's like, <laughs> it's stuck in your brain over and over and over again. But he again, doesn't right? care. <laughs> he doesn't care. And he he's not paying attention. And he has her scarf. <laughs> <laughs> matter <laughs> but you see what i'm saying there like there's things that get stuck in our brain like that way and become part of um not uh part of like our scripts of what we say and what we yeah. do in our family and and our friends and who how we think of things and i just wonder about that is that um i wonder when i was a kid and i i learned the words um roll out you know oh, yeah. it's because autobots. i was yeah exactly autobots roll out because yeah. i grew up with the transformers and is that like the first ever time that I learned about rollout and I would use that now all the time. We're going to roll out a plan today uh, with our, our action plan is going to, we're going to roll it out. Like, I wonder if that's not how I originally learned it. Meaning I'm probably more of an analytic, like I probably learned it more analytically, but it doesn't mean that I'm not also a gestalt learner. And I wonder if that's the same thing for uh, the students that we work with, that there's a, like maybe they're more gestalt learners, but occasionally they also are a little bit more of analytic and then it's not just so black and white. So what are your thoughts? What do you think about that as a... I just fell in love with you. (laughs) There's a lot of love happening on this podcast. Oh my gosh, that was like really profound. And yes, I can totally see that Mm -hmm. because there's things that I will use with kids. Like when I'm thinking something through, I say, I want to noodle it through with them and they have go noodle. And so it like brings a positive, they love go noodle. So Mm -hmm. it brings a positive feeling to them. And they're like, you said noodle. And can you think of a lot of other scripts that you might just say yourself because it's just like in your environment or it's in your um, repertoire that like, like I said, that, that the first one, that, that uh, Margot thing, we say that all oh, the time. Like we it's have just, shirts. Yeah, we match. have shirts that say, I don't know, Margot. And we yeah. say it all the time when it's like, where do you want to go to eat? I don't know, Margot. It just <laughs> comes out. We don't really think through the, I don't mm-hmm. know 
Margot, it just becomes part of the script, you know? Yeah. So what are your thoughts? I mean, I think it's really interesting. One of the takeaways from the Alexandria Zakos episode for me was that it has to be emotionally charged. And I feel like, you know, movies, songs, like they all like evoke emotion in us. And it's interesting to think about. I love this idea of a kind of a sliding scale, right? It's not black and white. And I think like, you know, hopefully everyone who's listening is thinking, how can I incorporate more of these scripts? Uh, I know that like my mind was blown after that episode. And I really started, you know, going down these rabbit holes of adult language processing thinking, okay, I think I've been doing this a little wrong. <laughs> One, <laughs> I've been focusing on, you know, analytic processing, single words, build one step at a time. But how can we kind of marry these two approaches? And um, especially because we know our kids who are non-speaking, you know, it's so hard to know if they're Gestalt language processors. Right. Like, how do we know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that maybe we should just start thinking through this lens a little bit more for all of our students as kind of a catch-all so that we're able to, you know, make sure that we're doing the best thing for the students that we serve. <laughs> Maybe you think that everybody's both. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And some people are just a little bit more or a little bit less of one or the other, but you support all of it, right? Exactly. Yeah. I totally agree. And one thing that I've been thinking through with Gestalt language processing in AAC is that one of the things that I feel like gets it stuck in our head is the intonation. And that's what you talked about in the episode too, right? So when you're using an AAC device, even if you were to say the Gestalt, it doesn't have the intonation. Mm -hmm. Um, So for one of my students, he sometimes uses spoken language, but when he does, it's in a phrase or Gestalt. Like when I come for speech, he says, not again. He he loves speech. He loves speech. (laughs) Um, But anyways, one thing that we're having a hard time with is when it's not time for him to have his cell phone, he gets really angry. And so he's not going to his device, even though we're modeling some things. And so one thing I want to try is he loves South Park. He loves Thomas and finding a clip from a show that would say something like, I'm annoyed or give me my phone or something that might communicate and to give him options of things that might communicate how he's feeling, but to say it in a gestalt with like the intonation of something that he's interested in. Yes. I feel like that could be programmed in is like, Oh my gosh, that is amazing. So I know that, for, so I'm just learning about this as I'm standing here. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> in real time, I'm learning about Gestalt. I'm, I'm so yeah. excited. You're the non-speech therapist in the I, group. I, yes. I, but I'm a junior speech you therapist. You are, you are. You're I have a badge. badge. <laughs> I do. I've been married for like way too long. So I had an IEP this week, and they were talking about learning multiplication facts. And she has paired each number with a song kids will know. Mm-hmm. So the eights are Jingle Bells. And Frere Jaca is the sixes. And so the kids, she said, will be sitting in the class. And when they're taking their timed, don't get me started on the timed ones, but timed multiplication facts, she's like, if I know where they're at based on the tune being hummed in my class. Wow. Mm-hmm. So they will just, she's like, I have Frere Jaca. I have, you know, happy birthday going on. And I have... Um, Jingle bells going on in my room. See, these are that amazing intonation is where yeah. it was, you know. We know these intuitively at a young age, right? Mm-hmm. We use these with young children mm-hmm. all the time. And then somewhere it dies off. And when it gets like, why do we not use them continuously? Songs, This was fourth grade. I mean, this is scripts. fourth grade, too. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, being in high school, they get embarrassed when you do these things. Do you think so? Because I, I, I don't know. I think when if they played like 
contemporary music and yeah, buy things to right. contemporary music, they'd be totally into it, right? right. It, yeah, if they did like kindergarten nursery rhymes, then they'd be offended. Yeah. But if you tied it to that Taylor, Taylor Swift, Swift song, you know, oh my gosh, they'd be into it, totally. We actually were talking about Cornell earlier and um, we have a couple, we, I'm in Ithaca, so Cornell University yeah. is in our hometown and there's students who have made this program called Rap Study. And so they take popular songs and then put academic content into the songs. So, so we have a partnership with them in our district. And so um, some teachers can say, this is what I'm teaching about and then send them the content and they pick a song and it's like Lizzo. Um, oh! And I'm so, amazed. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. I sign up. I sign that. up. So I know there, there's been a, another tool out there if you want to go, again, if you're listening to this, Flowcabulary. Have you heard of Flowcabulary? Flow. Yes. Right. Love, again, love same idea, okay. right? Yeah, same fun. idea. So, so fun. Cool. So everyone in back listening uh, there, so we're, again, we're around a table right now having fun uh, <laughs> chatting about this, but hopefully you can think about this as well um, and how you can implement it in your own practice. All right. So that was a great conversation, everybody. So Rachel, tell us about the interview today. You know what, Chris? It's super exciting because I just saw this person live at ASHA. Rachel Dorsey is who I interviewed. And I have to say, it was the, a fantastic session. Um, she actually got a standing ovation, which was like amazing. And uh, she was talking all about neurodiversity, uh, affirming practices. And that's what she came on our podcast to talk about. She has a course on goal writing. I'm really excited to share this interview. We talk all about neurodiversity. What does that mean? How does it affect what we're doing with the students that we serve? And I'm really excited because she was super passionate. She she killed it at ASHA. And I'm super excited that even if you weren't in ASHA, you can still enjoy the conversation that I had with her. I cannot wait to listen to this interview with Rachel Dorsey. Hey there. If you love listening to this podcast, we would be so, so grateful for your support to keep it going. By becoming a Patreon member, you can not only help us cover the cost of this podcast, but you can get some really great bonus content as well. We post video tutorials, behind-the-scenes recordings, and bonus segments from our interviews. We would love for you to join us by going to patreon.com slash talkingwithtech. That's patreon.com slash talkingwithtech. Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined today by Rachel Dorsey. Rachel, I'm super excited to have you on today. This has been a long time coming, this interview, and I'm really excited that you came on and you're going to share all of your experience with us. Um, so first, just start off by introducing yourself and telling our listeners a little bit about who you are and the experience that you've had. Yeah. Okay. So, so first of all, thank you for, thank you for having me. Um, yeah. So um, I am a speech language pathologist, but I am also autistic and um, also I have ADHD and um, I've been a speech language pathologist for about five and a half years. And um, I, I'm really passionate about uh, helping uh uh, autistic uh, people of all ages, particularly pediatrics, just because that's what most of my experience has has been in. Um, 
and I um, have uh, my own private practice um, and slash consultancy uh, where I um, provide professional developments um, regarding neurodiversity affirming practices. Um, and uh, and yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of what's going on for me. Um, I also have a, uh, a course that um, I released recently through Learn, Learn, Play, Thrive on goal writing um, for autistic students. Um, and it's uh, pretty comprehensive and it goes just through a bunch of case studies um, and a variety of situations. Um, and yeah, that's what, that's what's going on with me. I, I love it. I'm really excited. We're going to dive into um, some of the topics of the course, which is all about goal writing, um, which I'm really pumped that you just released that because I feel like goal writing is such an area of struggle for all of us SLPs. So listen, I picked the, like the driest subject, to be (laughs) honest. And, and, and like, no one likes goals and no one feels like they're good at goals. And I, I picked it because like, because people a year ago were asking when I didn't, didn't have a following, um, like, or people didn't know that much about me were like, asking for uh, advice in the top two topics were goals and social skills. And then I chose, I'm like, well, you need to have goals before you can do anything about uh, like social connection building and that sort of thing. So I went, just went the logical route and then, (laughs) and then that's kind of how, how things started. But uh, it like, it's, it's a, it, a really immersive course. I tried to make it as immersive as possible with like case study. And then bam, turns out the parent only wants oral speech or like, bam, turns out that the kid is in a really behaviorally based setting. How are you going to make this work? I think that we all learn so much through each other's experiences. And I feel like the the idea of case studies really resonates with me because it's like we every, and I'm sure you can relate to this too. So many people reach out to me and they're giving me a case study, right? They're like, I have a student, they're 10 years old. Like they give me all this information and it's like, what do I do? (laughs) And so I feel like it's a really practical way to learn though, because we can all relate to, you know, at some level, some of the kind of, uh, topics of a case study or the, you know, diagnoses and all of the things that we are involved in that. And then it's like, okay, now what do we actually do? Mm-hmm. And I think it helps guide the process of our clinical decision, decision-making skills. Mm-hmm. Um, like, why are we deciding this versus this? And what's the kind of theory behind it? Um, but I like it so practical because I know you've probably experienced this too. There's so many professional development courses where I'm like, cool, I know a great theory and a great framework, but right. I have no idea how to apply it to that my was clinical exactly, practice. Yeah, that was exactly what I tried to avoid because <laughs> of that frustration of I, I, you're telling me all about an intervention or a way of doing things. I have no idea what it looks like. I have no way to apply it. Some courses don't even do that are just pure theory and, and so then what? Yes, exactly. And it's like, and I feel like I leave thinking, cool, now what do I do with that information? <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. Okay. So for our listeners out there who are like, what is neurodiversity? Um, can you just define what that is? Um, 
and how it kind of relates to what we do is, you know, a lot of speech language pathologists listen to this podcast. We also have teachers and parents and other professionals too. Um, but what is, what is neurodiversity? Yeah. So, uh, neurodiversity is, uh, has actually existed. The concept has existed for quite a while. Um, it was coined in 1998 by um, Judy Singer, um, autistic advocate. But um, it it means that all brains are different through a combination of genetic and environmental factors. Uh, and that, and like that, that's it. That's what neurodiversity means. Um, and so, I mean, it really it. it to, to, I guess, get into more vocabulary, more uh, definitions, then uh, we get into like being neurodivergent, uh, which was coined by another autistic um, advocate, um, Kassiana Sasamasu, um, where like uh, that that's a person um, or a brain that is is different, that's different from like the the tip, quote unquote typical type of brain um and neuro uh, like a neurodivergent person um we we commonly um and including in, in like this podcast largely talk about it regarding autism as a type of neurodivergence mm -hmm. but it really extends far beyond that into children with language or people language disorders uh dyslexia um apraxia uh bipolar mm -hmm. uh adhd tourette's it, it's just all of these uh differences or uh, divergencies from from kind of the quote-unquote typical type of a, a brain that is actually a really important distinction because i think you're right i think we oftentimes just like equate autistic with neurodivergent but what you're saying is it's more of like an umbrella term um, mm -hmm. that includes all brains that you know might be different uh, which i think is an important distinction to make um and how because so your course or your uh, yeah your course is a neurodiversity affirming approach so can you kind of break down what that means um again for people who are like i'm just learning about neurodiversity um you know what does a neurodiversity affirming approach mean? Yeah, so um, neurodiversity affirming can really encompasses kind of a wide variety of things. And I feel like it encompasses um, more of a uh, like an ethic, an ethics approach, as opposed to like you do this and you don't do this, and you do mm -hmm. this and then you don't do this. So um, it it comes down to, I mean, uh, respecting uh, everyone's differences and seeing uh, seeing your students or clients. Uh, through the strengths that they have and not through just like a list of uh, the, you know, the deficits that we all see in their evaluation reports. And it uh, includes uh, listening to members of that community. So if, if you're treating um, uh, students that are, that, that have dyslexia, then you should find out what dyslexic adults have to say about that mm -hmm. um so it goes beyond autism like it goes kind of into a whole type of uh thinking about practice however uh 
my course is specific to autism school writing for autistic students. So a neurodiversity affirming approach to autism. So mm-hmm. listening to the autistic community, um, also being aware specifically um, with the autistic community that um, that it it can be difficult uh, to um, interpret the um the the behaviors or differences that that are in a client whose neurotype is different than yours and mm. i think acknowledging that that like this is this is difficult like of having a non-speaking autistic student um and and just being able to acknowledge that um you as a clinician aren't going to know exactly what to do all of the time and that's okay. And it's, it's okay to not have an answer right then and, and relating and just kind of relating it back to like building the relationship and just um, solidifying that, even if you don't know exactly like how to do X or Y or Z that's on your treatment plan. Yeah, I think that's a really important reminder for everyone because we oftentimes feel like we have to know all the answers and we have to have like, you know, especially when we're in an IP meeting or we're talking with a family, you know, having to know all the answers. And I think that, you know, the point you bring up about listening to the community of people that have the experience, the shared experience of the client that you're working with um, is such a powerful one. Um, you know, on this podcast, we interview AAC users and we, mm-hmm. and we do that because we want to hear what it's like to be an AAC user and how we can change the way that we work with AAC users to better support them. Um, and I think what's really cool is that now with the, um, you know, easy access to information through social media and, you know, the internet, now we're able to listen to autistic adults and we're able mm-hmm. to listen to, you know, all different kinds of, you know, uh, people who have different experiences and that can adapt the way that we work with the clients that we serve. Um, and I think what, where we kind of fall into trouble is where we're just like kind of in this like laser focused uh, view about what we should be doing. And I love that you brought up the point um, of neurotypes that are different than yours. Like the first step perhaps is just like understanding that you're not going to understand completely, you know, mm-hmm. the experience that's okay. of another. Right. right. That's okay. Um, I, I wouldn't expect anyone to, um, well, first of all, like not, not, all, even though if there's like the autistic community, there are very different opinions, even within the autistic community, um, on what to how how to best serve autistic children. And so, um, I would say, like, kind of when when seeking knowledge, kind of find the bigger themes that keep jumping out. Okay. So we're kind of sharing, I think one of the first steps is just kind of acknowledging the differences. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that that's an important step too, because I think oftentimes we're just trying to 
put all of these expectations on the students that we work with based on, again, our experience. Uh, and part of it is too, we're not taught this, right? In graduate school, like we're not taught, um, unfortunately, how to think through a neurodiversity affirming lens. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that's part of the problem and hopefully we'll see that change in the future. Um, are there other ways that educators um, or SLPs or parents can start kind of thinking through this lens um, besides just kind of listening to the communities of people that, you know, we're talking about? Is there any other things um, that can happen that we can kind of start shifting our perspectives? I mean, I I think the the best way to to target, I mean, this this will help anyone and and with working with like any population, but it's just a really important is like asking why. I feel like we don't ask or some people or a lot of people don't ask why, like why something is happening. Why is the student uh, being disruptive right now? Why did they demonstrate they could do something last week and then this week they can't do it? Why did they uh, go from not from like not not doing anything at all to all of a sudden, boom, being being able to do something that we never even thought they were capable of doing. Um, So, yeah, I think uh, constantly asking why, in addition to to, to, uh, constantly um, reflecting back on, on, um, because sometimes in the moment it's it's hard to ask why, and so you can do that later. I think like reflecting later and asking why, or, or thinking about um, what what's something that uh, the thing that happened didn't go exactly according to plan. What's the way? Uh, like why is that? Is there something in the environment? Is it something I did? Is it just an off day? Is it um, uh, and then and then just sh- shifting, you know, what you try doing next time according to that like self reflection, um, and I and I understand that like that advice is is can be kind of uh, broad and like isn't like a like do this and then do this. But but really, like that that is how y- how you get into thinking about um, about your students, particularly your your autistic students, um, through a um, more a, a neurodiversity affirming lens. Yeah, I think that's really important to kind of think about. I mean, I love the idea of asking why, because I think oftentimes we're just like kind of, especially in the moment, it's hard. One of the Mm -hmm. best things I think you can do as a clinician or just generally as a communication partner is watch yourself back on video. And like, there's so many opportunities for like, oh my gosh, wow. I didn't even realize like, you know, this was happening or like he started banging his hand on the table. Like maybe like he was trying to regulate. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think being really curious and of course, like watching back. Um, if you have the opportunity to watch, you know, your sessions back, um, I think can be really powerful. Um, I think it also kind of comes back to this idea of, um, you know, really trying to 
remember that as therapists, we're trying to support students. And I think that, you know, oftentimes we're so laser focused on our goals and our strategies that like, if a child's showing us, you know, something different than like what we had planned or what we're intending to work on, um, you know, we're so rigid in our thinking of like, okay, I have to do this specific thing that we're like, wow, like maybe he's thirsty. Like maybe this bang on the table is like, he needs some type of sensory input, you know, and really just remembering that like, you know, in order to learn, you know, we need to be ready to learn. Right. And there's lots of kind of things that go into that. Um, but also just like, let's just ha- like support the students that we're working with um, and thinking maybe outside the box of what that looks like. And I think it starts with just like having open communication with students um, and also being kind of detectives for our kids who don't necessarily have access to, um, you know, enough language to communicate those things to us. Um, kind of that's what our job is, right? Is like coming in and giving that language and teaching that language. Um, so anyway, I just think that part of it is just thinking like, take a step back and be like, how can I support the kid that's right in front of me right now? Right. Um, I, I no, I, I completely agree. And I, I think that, um, I mean, honestly, in, in situations where like, I, I'm not sure what exactly, um, you know, what, like the why is something that I'll reflect on later, but in the in the moment, the best thing that I can do is is co-regulate with with a student because I like I know that 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 is um, the thing that's needed. Like we're like no no demands. Um, co-regulate could mean different things to different students. It could mean you know being kind of near them and you know like holding arms out and kind of offering a hug it could mean getting to the other side of the room and just sort of me drawing on paper doing my own thing and then the student is able to um uh you know without me being directly next to them kind of get um kind of get some um some space uh and and i think really a <laughs> really uh ethically uh, as far as like supporting our students, uh, mental health, particularly autistic students who are, who, uh, face a lot of, uh, traumas and, uh, pretty, pretty regularly, uh, being that person that's, that's willing to, um, to put, to kind of put what we, what we were going to do on hold and just like have a session of, um, of co-regulation may seem like a, a typical may seem like that's not a skilled service, but it is because you're assessing what the student needs and that is what they need. And you're giving them what they need in order to, for the future, be um like have greater rapport um feel just more socio-emotionally secure so um i yeah i'm a, I'm a big fan of kind of just taking a step back kind of re- reducing it all and and just being there with the client yeah and i think that you know a lot when we're talking in the aac world is we're talking about connection like it mm-hmm. starts with connection and yeah. you know that looks different for different kinds of students and i think just like building that connection um you know 
obviously gives us a lot of information content, like you mentioned, about what we could do in the future to, you know, better regulate. Um, but I also think that it builds trust. And I think that a lot of the kids that I, that we work with, um, you already mentioned trauma. I think they've experienced so much trauma from the adults around them, um, that it doesn't feel like a safe place, you know, and if we can create that safe space, um, think about all the potential that's opened up. Um, you know, when we go into a situation of communication where we have anxiety and, you know, any of us, like we're not Mm -hmm. going to perform the same as when we feel like we're in a safe space with someone who is safe, uh, you know, to be around and to communicate with. And I feel like that's a huge part that's oftentimes missing. Uh, we kind of just like roll in and we're like, okay, what do you like? Let me just pull things out of a bag and, you know, kind of force this interaction. Right. Um, sometimes we just need to, to slow it down and to really observe instead of, you know, right. trying to get kids to like actively participate. And the, and the same way that like we as adults can like sense a forced interaction, like kids, people can sense forced interactions. Kids can sense forced interactions. Autistic people can sense when you, you are just sort of faking being interested in our favorite thing. Um, and so I think being just gen, like genuine with it goes an extremely long way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. Um, so when we're thinking about, we kind of mentioned AAC a little bit. Um, I'm really excited. We're going to talk a little bit about kind of the goals and parts of your course, because I'm really excited to share that with our audience and definitely like recommend everyone go sign up for this course. I'm like excited to take it too. Um, but um, thinking about AAC, um, mm-hmm. how, because oftentimes we hear, especially when we're thinking about autistic students who do have verbal speech, um, that maybe it's not necessary um, when we know, you know, it can be really helpful to have a backup system for communication. It also can be a great tool to teach language. Um, you know, how, what are your thoughts on AAC? and, you know, how we can get more people on board. Um, One of the biggest questions we get asked on the podcast is like, how do you get people to buy into AAC? Because a lot of the people listening are like, yeah, I'm all about AAC, but it's like, how do I get everyone else to be all about it? So I'm curious if you have any strategies or, you know, thoughts on that topic specifically. On getting people on board with AAC, if this, if the student is able to sometimes or even usually uh use spoken language yes oh well see then we get into a a bigger discussion of um that using aac uh makes a person uh stand stand out more Mm -hmm. and it makes a person look I mean some parents are concerned like oh it'll take language away then we can show the research right and the research is like no it won't and so then but then some parents are still resistant and so we kind of peel back the layers and um and, and see okay what's underneath this and I feel like underneath it not just parents but like this society is that um disabilities, disabled people, uh, being openly disabled is uncomfortable for people to see. And, um, they're not sure what to do. And, um, to, to get around that, it requires a lot of, um, in my experience, 
having to not necessarily even address AAC, but to go back further and and um, undo the damage that society has done in how parents think of disabilities. And um, since I work with a lot of autistic students, particularly autism, Mm -hmm. and um, working through that then leads to various changes in thinking. So um, I know the question was specific to, to AAC, but it, it, it goes deeper into that to a societal problem. Yeah. And I think it kind of also speaks to the idea circling back to changing the way we think about neurodivergent brains, right? Like if we think about, you know, autistic individuals through that perspective, it's not something that, you know, we need to be, you know, hiding or ashamed of or anything like that, because we're thinking about like what beautiful gifts all brains have to, you know, share with our you know community. Um, and I think that circling back to that, I think that, you know, you're very right in the sense of, you know, it's, it's bigger than AAC. Um, oftentimes AAC is like the thing that we can latch onto to be like, Oh, like they just don't want to, you know, their child to talk, you know, through a device. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, why? Right? right. Like, because it makes them appear like definitively disabled. Um, and it's, it's obvious. Um, whereas, you know, perhaps if it weren't for the AAC that, you know, it might go kind of under the radar, if you will. So maybe like, and then I love that, that it's a bigger discussion. It's a bigger kind of problem. And I'm all about when you're trying to solve problems and trying to understand what the roadblocks are, like we need to dig deeper, right? Like we need to figure out what's actually at play here. Um, and I think that just involves asking a lot of questions and being curious and trying to share information. And I feel like you have such a unique experience too, Rachel, because you are autistic. And so like, that's so powerful for probably the families that you work with. Um, yeah, I mean, I, um, like when I, I'm well, so I guess now in private practice, it's in my uh, brand name, like business name that I'm autistic. (laughs) So I can't, I can't get around it. But, but um, before uh, I was, I, I only sometimes um, disclosed that I was autistic. Um, And, and even with the families who, who weren't, um, who were like very, hesitant to accept that that their child was autistic um I didn't necessarily bring up that I'm autistic because then that that could set up a um oh well you know this person here is a uh speech therapist and married and you know like I I don't want to I want to make it clear that their child's value is separate from like what, like what they could have a job or marry. And of course, parents are going to want those things for their kid. And that's kind of the first things that they get scared about. But often when I, when I talk to parents who are uncomfortable with autism about autism, and I don't mention that I'm autistic, I really help the parents see themselves in their child because often they're at a point where 
their child's doing these things. They don't understand their Mm -hmm. child isn't interacting with them in a uh, way that they see. That's uh, obviously like a very neurotypical means of displaying affection. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they feel very separate from their child and um, like they lost their child. And I, I really try to help the parent see themselves and their child, how, what their how the way that the child is experiencing the world. There's a lot of commonalities between that, that and, and everyone, but, but you specifically too. Um, and, and that's been, that's been really helpful. I found, um, in, in helping, helping parents, um, get it more without, without, um, like bringing out like a paper of like here's neurodiversity and here's like right. here's like all these great things about like your child's autistic and um da-da-da, which can come across like preachy i mm-hmm. i want it to be like uh like practical like the, like the parent um can can genuinely start to uh see the child for who they are and appreciate the child who they are and um, understand that child for who they are. Yeah. I mean, I love that because I think that ultimately sometimes, again, I think if we're thinking about, um, you know, perhaps neurotypes that are different than ours, it's hard for us to kind of observe those things, but it sounds like what you try to do is guide parents through that process yeah. um, and reveal things to them that maybe they didn't notice uh, or observe before, yeah. um, which I think is really, really helpful. And I think it's also helpful advice for us to kind of think through that lens as well. Um, when we're working with students um, is really just being an active observer and trying to find those commonalities, I think, because they exist. I think they're just not as apparent or obvious initially the commonalities could be commonalities like in in a like you know i i you know a kid is to use a pretty common but stereotyped example a kid is lining up um trains um and and i'm like oh wow look uh she 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 put them in in a really straight perfect line um that's that's a lot like how when um, I am organizing my DVD set, I, I try to get them in like the right alphabetical order. Um, and then if like one is like out, out of alphabetical order, I try to put it in the right spot. Um, so I, I try to like, even though those aren't the same, there's an underlying theme of, um, of some like, you know, trying to find order um, in something that's visual. I love that. I think that it's like a practical thing where there is that common overarching theme there. Um, and I think that, you know, anchoring into something that people understand, um, is really helpful for, for people, um, which I love. Okay. So I'm curious, um, you know, we're, kind of thinking like, how can we work with family members, educators? Um, I'm curious to talk just a little bit about self-advocacy because I think that I'm I'm anticipating that part of your goal writing course um, is addressing that um, because it's such an important skill to start teaching. Um, You know, all of our students, I think, could benefit from that, but especially uh, our students with complex communication needs. Um, So I'm curious what 
you know, um, your experience has been and, you know, how that can translate to the students that we work with, like what kinds of self-advocacy um, goals can we think about? And like, what are the things that we need to be teaching our students so that they can, you know, advocate for the things that they need? Yeah. So self-advocacy is a, um, I do go into that in, in my course and um, I, uh, the course was, is like seven and a half hours of filmed footage. So like, I wish I could have gone into self-advocacy more, but it was already really long. Um, <laughs> you're probably going to, gonna, you're, we're probably going to hear more about it than, um, I, I filmed in the, in, in the course regarding kind of the, how I conceptualize self-advocacy, which mm-hmm. is, I mean, it's, it's knowing what you need and then being able to to get what you need. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah. So, so knowing what you need and, and acting on what you need are different, different skills that are, um, are obviously related. Um, I think early on in life, uh, the, the autistic child, uh, or autistic children have a, an intuition of what they need and that's expressed through, uh, through like a lot of sensory, um, like regulation strategies are really early on in life. And then, um, I see, you know, society and, and well-intended or intentioned, um, therapists and teachers, uh, wanting, uh, those, those, uh, obvious displays of sensory differences um or obvious displays of um of communication differences want that to to kind of go away and so they become suppressed and and then once they're once they're kind of suppressed it's hard to then rebuild uh the the student being able to then like know what they need. I mean, I see a lot of um, autistic kids that are in older elementary school and uh, and they they don't even know what what they need. Um, so I, I think teaching about um, like helping kind of relearn, um, about like, you know, listening to your body and, um, and, and being able to assign, uh, some sort of label wording to what is happening and and perhaps eventually, uh, an emotion to it, um, as far as self-advocacy goes is, extremely important in order to get to that first step the the what do i need um and then the the second step acting on that need is also really really difficult because autistic students have years of um they acted on the need they uh were maybe uh like me as a really young autistic child like spitting out food and putting it back in my mouth and spitting it f- out food and putting it back in my mouth actually I did that until age of 10 I wasn't super young um 
and and you know i was uh i still am like an oral sensory seeker like i'm wearing my (laughs) chewy right now um and you know that i was acting on my need but uh that was considered shameful um so then it then it stopped and so um there's a lot of repeated cases of autistic children trying to act on needs just even like crying uh trying to show i need something Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it's disruptive behavior of autistic children um you know throwing disruptive behavior although it really is demonstrated i need something Mm -hmm. um and so really both parts of self-advocacy here are from a really young age, but then consistently throughout the autistic person's life, just shut down. So mm-hmm. by the time that the autistic kid is in high school, trying to teach self-advocacy skills is really, really hard. <laughs> um, and I mean, in the, in the course, I, I, I have a lot of self-advocacy goals and they're um, specifically actually is the, the kids, um, the older kids that are in there, like the adolescents. I know it's going to be a very, very long process to get there um, to like in the moment, be able to like say what you need or push, put, push, have boundaries or something so my uh criteria my measurement criteria and my like setting are just like one-to-one and like 70 percent because i just i just know it's really really hard uh, to undo you want to say the word undo but like undo society's damage and like the damage of a well-intentioned um educational system um Mm -hmm. at that point yeah. And I think you bring up a really good point in this idea of masking, which I think is like, we're starting to kind of learn more about what that is and what that looks like. And it's like, you know, it doesn't make sense to have to unlearn all these things. If we can just from the start, um, be more inclusive and really just look at everything a child is showing you as information, um, yeah, and being sure. curious as to why it's happening instead of this idea that, it's maladaptive or it needs Mm -hmm. to be extinguished or all these things that we're now learning is like, it's just not, that's not the right course of action. Um, Right. And it causes, yeah, it just causes so, so much damage um, to, to, to all, all autistic children. Yeah. So you mentioned a little bit about your course. Are there any like gems of wisdom you can share or, you know, talk a little bit more about the course? I'm really excited. Seven hours. Wow. That's a long course. Lots it's of a seven, yeah. It's well, so it's, yeah, it's seven, seven and a half hours. Um, it is, uh, uh, I provide with um, case studies that, and I try to make it really pr- practical uh like true to life types of situations not like the ideal type of situation um that you know to to that's encountered um and uh the the case studies um i i kind of 
show you how to go along with me in, in creating goals. So it actually counts for a uh, 10 and a half um, ASHA uh, CEUs because there is an element of you having to stop the video and like coming up with things and then, you know, seeing if they, I mean, they don't have to necessarily perfectly align with, with what I propose, but saying if the general concepts are similar or not. Um, what else? Oh, regarding AAC, that's a pretty big part of the goals that I write. Um, yeah, I, uh, so I, this was driven out of just being so in infuriated by, um, like in the, in the IEP, it says like, yes, the, the, AAC should be available at all times. Great. It's not. Like you walk in Truth. and it's not, it's in the backpack. Students not able to access it. It's been taken away because the, the kid is pressing one button repeatedly. Um, so, I mean, I, I try to, to safeguard against that by directly including in, in goals, um, for multimodal communicators, um, like, like given like unrestricted access to high and low tech AAC and like start off with that, <laughs> which, which is like repetitive and that like in the, in the IEP, it already says, uh, it already says that a like AAC is given, but now, but now it's personal because like now it's affecting my ability to do my job because now it's in my goals. Mm -hmm. And so it just allows more protection for for the students' uh, right to access um, their um, their uh, whatever form of AAC that they are using. Um, a lot of the goals I write do serve kind of a protective function. Um, I I embed in there uh, how how the uh, student is going to demonstrate the said skill, but I accept for a lot of the students, like gestures, verbalizations, vocalizations, spoken word, AC, actions, facial expression, body language. Um, because while, you know, we're working towards a more symbolic form of communication, we should always respect how a student is communicating with us mm -hmm. through these other modalities. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I try to goals are, are a little, a little lengthy, but, um, <laughs> there's only one comma, I believe. <laughs> I think that's the rules. Like almost initially I have one comma and you know, I do that. Um, but it is out of, um, protecting the student because you don't know if, you know, what's going to happen to you as a provider. Like you may get another job, you may be put in another school, you may, mm -hmm. you know, a student may be put on someone else's caseload. And mm -hmm. then if the goal doesn't, um, if the goal isn't written in a very clear, clear laid out way of like, here is how this student should be respected in trying to reach this target skill, then the student could at the very worst be at the very best, like not, not, not learn anything at the very worst be traumatized. 
Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that, you know, we oftentimes will see like, you know, multimodal communication embedded into a goal, which I think is important. Um, I love that you specify what that looks like because I think sometimes it's used as like an umbrella term. Um, But more importantly, I love this idea of given unrestricted access because it's literally (laughs) like, if you're doing this goal, the AAC system must be there, (laughs) you know? And if, and if it's not, then like, we can't even really take criteria or benchmarks on those goals. Right. Yeah. Now, now you other staff member are impacting my ability to do my job. So Yeah. um, yeah. Exactly. And, it, and, and, and oftentimes what happens is we get feedback from, you know, school-based SLPs all the time saying like, oh, like, you know, no one has the device out and, you know, but now it's like directly impacting a child's ability to make progress. And again, we always get from school-based SLPs, like I'm so, I have to, I have to make progress on the goals. Like it's so goal-driven, which, you know, in a lot of respects it should be, but it's like the way we write our goals is so impactful and so important. And so I love this idea of including this. It might be a little wordy, but like, let's do it anyway. <laughs> yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't care. That's wordy. It's like, I care first and foremost about protecting the student and, and the students being respected. So Love, there you go. love that. Um, okay. So for people who are like, yes, to all these like mm-hmm. ideas and these goals, I need more from Rachel Dorsey. How do people access your course? Yeah. So, um, my course, if you go to, um, learn, play, thrive, um, the learn, play, thrive.com slash goals, uh, you'll be able to, to sign up. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's just there. Perfect. <laughs> the easiest well, way to find it. We'll definitely link to that in the show notes. Um, I'm curious, Rachel, um, you know, I love your perspective and all the information you shared has been awesome. Um, I definitely advocate for everybody who is working with autistic students, which is most people, um, you know, go take Rachel's course. Um, I'm sure you have tons more gems of wisdom to share and frameworks and ideas and practical information in there. Um, I'm curious um, what, if you had a takeaway for everyone, you know, working with you know, autistic students, um, a message that you'd like to share with everyone. What do you think that message would be? This isn't actually something that we previ- that we've previously discussed. Um, but I guess, but I mean, it, it, it goes into the themes of what, what we discussed is that, um, get like consent and dissent are, uh, for all students, extremely important for autistic students, not more important because it's important for everyone, but it's often harder to read in our autistic students. So we need to pay a really close attention to the really subtle ways that our kids are letting us know, no, this isn't okay. Or like, yeah, this is okay. Yeah. I think that's exactly, um, that's a really great takeaway. And also again, for kids with complex communication needs, um, you know, that is incredibly important to really see in perhaps nonverbal ways, Mm -hmm. um, how our kids are communicating with us, what they need from us, um, instead of, you know, kind of coming in with this idea in our heads about what we're going to do and how a a child should act, um, you know, accordingly, I think just being like really curious and, um, observant, um, I think is a really good skill. Yep. Amazing. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on today. You have been amazing. I knew it was going to be everything I thought it would be and more. Um, I am curious. So people can follow you on social media, right? Rachel at Rachel um, Dorsey or what? Um, 
Uh, yeah, so my, I think Dorsey SLP might have already been taken um, on Instagram. So it's our Dorsey SLP on Instagram, uh, on Facebook. Uh, just type in Rachel Dorsey Autistic SLP. Um, and I mean, I have my website, which is um, DorseySLP.com. Amazing. Thank you again for coming on, Rachel. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Rachel. (laughs) I know. Two Rachels together just talking about autistic students and goals and AAC. I love it. Right. Thank you. For talking with tech, I'm Rachel Madel, joined by Rachel Dorsey. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll talk to you guys next week.